It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Friday, December 15th. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. St. Lawrence County's public transit system has record-breaking ridership this year. It comes as the county will have a new electronic system for counting passengers. The overall goal of that is that we have better data about how the system is being used and with the goal of improving the routes. Service providers, people people with developmental and intellectual disabilities say the governor's new budget should include more money to help them pay their workers. Also, we'll talk with a man who runs addiction recovery groups in Malone. We do a lot of disputing of our own thinking. And eventually with that disputing of our thinking, it becomes natural. Eventually it becomes habit. And Amy Fireisel stops by to tell us about two wintertime events in Lake George. All of that and more is coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by the Depot Theater, Westport, a professional equity theater in the Adirondacks, celebrating its 45th season, depotheater.org. And St. Lawrence Health committed to keeping the community healthy and safe by providing vaccines for patients to strengthen their defenses, stlawrencehealthsystem.org. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. A Rochester Institute of Technology student who went missing more than three weeks ago has been found safe and alive. Matthew Grant's disappearance prompted a multi-day search that included the Adirondacks. Grant was last seen at 10 p.m. on November 20th. Various media outlets reported that he'd been looking at maps of the Adirondacks and Appalachian Trail that night. His car, a charcoal gray 2014 Jeep Cherokee, was last tracked through the thruway exit in Syracuse. WHAM-TV reports that police in the town of Delaware Water Gap, Pennsylvania, found Grant's car Tuesday, which sparked search and rescue efforts in the area Wednesday. Grant learned about the search effort and stopped at a nearby police station where he called his mother to tell her he was safe and coming home. In a find, Matthew Grant... In a Find Matthew Grant Facebook group, he said he wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who helped in the search. Addiction is a problem that's getting worse in the United States. In 2022, over 100,000 people in the U.S. died from overdose. Even people who want to get help sometimes struggle getting access to care, especially in rural areas like the North Country. Today, we hear from someone on the front lines of the battle against addiction, a volunteer who runs recovery groups in Malone. Anna Williams-Bergen has this North Country at Work story. Chris Hastings is in his 60s with short hair and glasses. He's a mental illness advocate. He also spends a lot of time trying to help people recover from substance abuse. You know, nobody grows up wanting to be an addict or an alcoholic. That's what happens. We just get there. Hastings is one of the people who can help. 
He's a trained facilitator for Smart Recovery. That's a self-help program for people struggling with addiction. It's kind of like a secular AA, with free meetings in towns across the U.S., including the one Hastings leads in Malone. Believe in the power of choice. We do the training for individuals with the tools we need in order to maintain and have recovery. Hastings works with people in person and online, teaching Smart Recovery's four-point program. First point is we build and maintain motivation. And then the second point is we learn to cope with our urges. And then part of what our tools do is they help us manage our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And that allows us to eventually live that balanced life. Hastings says that part of what makes him a good facilitator is that he's been there. He started using drugs and alcohol as a teen, looking for refuge from his mental illness. He went to prison a few times and struggled with homelessness. Hastings went to rehab for the first time in his mid-20s. It didn't get him clean, but it got him motivated. I was determined to get back on the roof because I had had a taste of what it was like to be okay. Years later, Hastings was able to get sober using Rational Recovery, the predecessor to Smart Recovery. But Hastings didn't start leading recovery groups until about five years ago. He lost a nephew due to opioid addiction, and it inspired him to get trained as a smart recovery facilitator. Because I know where I would be right now if it weren't for recovery. At meetings, Hastings teaches people tools that help them feel in control of their choices. One is disputing irrational beliefs, learning to question harmful thinking. We do a lot of disputing of our own thinking. And eventually with that disputing of our thinking, it becomes natural. Eventually, it becomes habit. Smart recovery helps people get and stay sober. But you don't have to be clean to come to their meetings. Hastings says that most of the people who come aren't, at least at first. And they're looking for hope. And that's all we offer. We offer hope. Hastings also works with friends and family of those struggling with addiction. They have their own meetings. We show people how to help get their family members into treatment a little bit easier. How not to fall victim into the chaos, to get your own sense of power back. Hastings' work can be heart-wrenching. He says he has a big support system that helps him deal with it. I have to stay well in order to help others because a lot of things hit home. So I need to be able to talk about those also. The thing that keeps me going is knowing the people that I've helped. One of the greatest motivators is when somebody's walking down the street and I see them and I know that they're doing well. Hastings got clean way before the opioid epidemic. He says opioids have transformed things. More people are dying, and they're dying younger. But there are also more ways to help prevent overdose. This is scary. And that's why I'm so happy that they've made Narcan and the test strips available to anyone and everyone. Test strips tell users if their drugs are laced with fentanyl, a highly potent opioid. This helps prevent accidental overdose. Narcan is the brand name of naloxone, a nasal spray that reverses opioid overdose by blocking the drugs from the brain. It's now available over the counter, and in New York State, anyone can administer it to help stop a fatal overdose. It only works on opiates. It won't affect people using other drugs. I carry Narcan everywhere I go, and we hand it out to anybody and everybody. No one knows when they may be able to save a life. For Hastings, helping people get sober is about keeping people alive. But it's also about giving back. People treated me 
to the point where I was able to find recovery. That's what I want. This is an opportunity because if one person hears about it, it's a win. And that's all that matters is somebody's life gets back on, on track because we are losing people left and right. Hastings Group for Family and Friends runs every Wednesday evening in Malone. Meetings for those struggling with addiction are every Tuesday. For North Country Public Radio's North Country at Work Project, I'm Anna Williams-Bergen. If you or someone you know wants to seek treatment for addiction, call the National Information Hotline at 1-800-662-4357. That's 800-662-4357. And if you use substances, you can call the Never Use Alone Hotline and have someone on the phone to help you in case you overdose. Their number is 877-696-1996. That's Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's nine minutes past eight. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up in just a few minutes, Amy Fireisel stops by to let us know about two new winter attractions open in Lake George. That conversation in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. This is Evan Veenstra out of Gananoque, Ontario. Broadcast of Northern Light is supported by Adirondack Foundation, making grants to nonprofits that address community issues of childcare, attainable housing, career pathways, basic needs, and more. Adirondackfoundation.org. The end of the year is fast approaching. Still time, though, to make your year end gift to North Country Public Radio a one time special gift in support of regional news. You get every weekday right here. Go to ncpr.org slash give and thanks. Groups that advocate for people with developmental and intellectual disabilities are asking Governor Kathy Hochul to provide more money for services. They say more than a decade of neglect has pushed them to the breaking point. Karen DeWitt reports. The lobbying effort includes CP State. It's a not-for-profit organization with nearly 30 affiliates that provide services and programs for more than 100,000 New Yorkers who have cerebral palsy and developmental disabilities and their families. Those services include medical care, child care, transportation, and workforce training and employment. CP State's Mike Alvaro says the groups are funded through the government health program Medicaid. They're asking for a 3.2% cost of 
living increase in reimbursements from the state and federally funded program. He says Governor Hochul has been more generous than her predecessors. She granted a cost of living increase during the two years she's overseen the state budget. But Alvaro says that amount does not make up for a prior decade-long freeze on the rate for Medicaid reimbursements. We're really looking for an investment in the disability field to make up for what was more than a decade of, I think, indifference. And we're looking to get the administration to continue on the path that they started. He says since 2016, there's been an 8% decrease in the number of residential spots available. Daycare slots have also been reduced by 17%, and clinical programs are a tenth smaller. The nonprofits are also struggling with a severe staffing shortage. 20% of positions are currently vacant. Alvaro says that's because Medicaid only allows providers to pay around $16 an hour. He says the groups can't compete with the fast food industry and retail outlets, which often offer more than that as a starting wage. New York State, which provides a much smaller number of similar services, pays $23 an hour for the same jobs. Alvaro's group and other providers are asking the state to supplement the wages they pay their 19,000 employees so they can pay them an average of $4,000 more per year by increasing what's called the Direct Support Wage Enhancement Program. It allows providers to, on average, make a $2 per hour investment in our workforce. Now, these are people who work directly. These are direct support uh, folks. It's clinicians, it's uh, direct care workers, our drivers, other folks that are directly supporting people with disabilities. Alvaro says the investment is worth it. He points to a SUNY Rockefeller Institute study. It found that nonprofit disability service providers in New York generate $14.3 billion in economic input and help support nearly 200,000 jobs while contributing contributing over $2 billion in federal and state tax revenue. The groups know they will have an uphill battle this year. Governor Hochul's budget office has already warned that 2024 will be lean, with a projected budget gap of over $4 billion. The governor has already asked state agencies to hold the line on spending. We are hearing that it's going to be a difficult budget year, that there aren't a lot of dollars. But Alvaro says if the nonprofit providers can't offer the services, then the state will have to pick up the programs at a significantly higher cost. In all Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. St. Lawrence County's public bus ridership is reaching new heights. The number of rides this year already surpassed last year's record-breaking total. Catherine Wheeler reports it comes as the county will have a new way to count passengers to get better data on where people are traveling. Last year, there were more than 97,000 rides on St. Lawrence County's buses. By the end of this October, that number passed 109,000, already making this year the highest usage ever for the county's bus system. St. Lawrence County's mobility manager, Sonia Jensen, says the numbers have bounced back since they were down in 2020 and 2021. She says she thinks more people are getting used to using public transportation. People are seeing the buses. They have a presence in the community. People begin to recognize them and maybe know people who have started to use them. I think just the more public transit becomes a fixture in St. Lawrence County, the more 
people begin to feel comfortable with it and potentially see it as something that they want to participate in, they want to ride. Jensen says once people know public transit works, they keep using it. She says the county's first mile, last mile program is a good example. It's when volunteer drivers will pick up transit riders from their homes or business and get them to the best bus stop. While ridership is up, the county still wants to make its public transit system better. So county legislators recently approved the purchase of an electronic passenger counting system. Jensen says they can use the data to evaluate the county's 16 bus routes and make changes. The overall goal of that is that we have better data about how the system is being used and with the goal of improving the routes. Jensen says right now drivers are collecting information at each stop with pencil and paper. She says with the new system, drivers will use the already installed specialized tablets. And she says one perk will be more accurate information about where riders are flagging down buses in between stops. It happens a lot, like along Route 68 uh, between Canton and Ogdensburg, um, but it can also happen... Um, anywhere that the bus is able to safely pull over um, and pick up a passenger. And so right now, it's kind of up to the individual driver's discretion how those riders get logged. Jensen says it'll be a while before data starts coming in. She says then they'll look at ways to make the public transit system more efficient. Catherine Wheeler, North Country Public Radio. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up in just a minute, we'll hear from Amy Fireisel about a couple of new winter attractions in Lake George. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note, how puffins spend their winters. But uh, first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. The weather service says mostly clear skies today, partly to mostly sunny with highs in the 40s. Winds out of the west southwest 10 to 15. 15 miles per hour, occasionally some higher gusts. Then uh, clouds tonight and probably cloudy through the rest of the weekend, but mild highs, 40s again on Saturday, a high near 50, both Sunday and Monday. Maybe some mixed precipitation Sunday night into Monday, what the Weather Service calls that wintry mix, but mild highs uh, in the 50s in Glens Falls on Sunday, highs upper 40s, low 50s on Monday. Again, partly to mostly sunny today. Highs in the 40s and winds out of the west-southwest. Here with the check of uh, outdoor conditions in the Adirondacks for the weekend is John Warren. On Saturday, sunrise will be at about 725 and sunset at about 418. Some light snow is expected on the highest summits by morning and Sunday will be blustery. A soaking rainfall is expected later Sunday into Monday when near record high temperatures are also expected. Follow the weather closely Sunday and Monday when some flooding is possible. On the highest summits, temperatures will remain in the mid-30s through the weekend, with wind chills mostly in the teens and very windy conditions on Sunday, with winds expected from 40 to 45 miles per hour. High-peaked summits are likely to be above the cloud cover this weekend. 
Hikers should be prepared for wet and snowy conditions with everything from wet and muddy to icy and frozen trails and deeper snow at elevation. Carry traction devices and snowshoes if you are headed above about 2,500 feet where there are places of deep snow. Snow depths range from an inch or two at the periphery of the Adirondack Park up to about 10 inches at middle elevations with about 4 to 7 inches in most of the central and northern Adirondacks except at the highest elevations where there is deeper snow up to a couple feet in some locations including at Lake Colden. Waters are iced over mostly with thin dangerous ice. Avalanche Lake is being crossed although be aware of the open inlet and outlet. Looking at downhill ski conditions, Whiteface picked up about a foot and a half of new snow this week and will have a half dozen lifts on about 25 trails open this weekend. Gore Mountain got about six inches of fresh snow this week, but will have only marginally fewer lifts and trails open. Macaulay Mountain and Old Forge will have a few trails open starting today, and Oak Mountain near Speculator will open for the season with a few trails starting today as well. And Titus Mountain will open for the season at 10 a.m. this morning. All the groomed cross-country ski facilities will be open this weekend. Facilities in the Lake Placid, Saranac Lake, and Tupper Lake region all picked up at least half a foot or more of fresh snow this week and will be your best bet for the weekend. Backcountry skiing is largely limited to the Whiteface Memorial Highway and Marcy Truck Trail and high up in Avalanche Pass and some of the smoother terrain like the open truck roads such as Hayesbrook Truck Trail and possibly the Fish Pond Truck Trail, also over in the Cedarlands Conservation Easement and on the Stony Pond Trail. The roads to Boris Ponds and Newcomb Lake both have good cover and are your best bets for the backcountry routes this weekend. Those are the outdoor conditions in the Adirondacks this weekend. For North Country Public Radio, this is John Warren from the New York Almanac, online at newyorkalmanac.com. You're listening to Northern Light right here on North Country Public Radio. It's about 20 after 8. Good morning. I'm Monica Sandreski. Two new winter attractions opened recently in Lake George called Winter Realms and Winter's Dream. Neither is dependent on snow or ice, and there's a reason for that. And to tell us all about them, Amy Fireisel is in the studio this morning. Hey, Amy. Hi. Really happy to be here. (laughs) Well, Amy, we're so glad to have you. So let's start with Winter Realms, which is actually replaced a different attraction, Ice Castles, which was a huge castle built and run by a wintertainment company that has ice castles in five different locations across the U.S. What prompted that switch? So the very simple answer to that question is the weather. Uh, ice castles came to Lake George just two winters ago, um, but both years that they built that castle and it was open, there were a lot of thaws and warmer temperature days. You know, we probably all remember those over the last two winters. And those warmer days mixed in with the really cold days made it really hard to keep the castle intact. You know, it just kept melting and they had to close lots of weekends. And last year it actually ended up only being open for about two months, and they had definitely hoped it would be open for longer. So the extreme swings in temperature, which scientists attribute to climate change, has made it a lot harder to build and maintain an ice castle for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. We've seen that in Saranac Lake's recent struggles to build their ice palace. Yeah, yeah. Last winter, you know, it was for a moment there, they were really wondering. (laughs) And But the thing is, the ice castle in Lake George, you know, when it was open, it was really popular. And it did exactly what you know, the community of Lake George was hoping it would do, which is attract people up to the region in the winter, you know, not just the summer season for which they're known. There were about 90,000 visitors um, just last year to the Ice Castle. Um, And that's a big reason that the parent company, which is also called Ice Castles, decided to create this other attraction, Winter Realms, to replace Ice Castles. 
Well, in Winter Realms is being described as a weather-resilient winter attraction. That means, so no snow, no problem, right? How does that work? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's basically it's winter-proof. Um, the, the main features are things like big holiday light displays, a glycol ice skating rink, you know, that will never melt, an ice sculpture garden that keeps getting replenished with new sculptures, and I spoke with Brad Buellhorn, the East Coast Operations Manager for Ice Castles, the parent company. They opened on November 24th. That was like their earliest open date ever. And he says that wouldn't have been possible with an ice castle. Just in a short time that we've already been open, uh, which was November 24th, we have seen a lot of snow. We have seen a lot of rain. And we have seen unseasonably warm temperatures. For an ice castle, this all spells trouble. Um, but for this new experience, we have been open every single day that we have been scheduled to be open, which was the entire aim of this project, to create an authentic winter experience that can be enjoyed, whether it's five degrees outside or 50 degrees outside. And it's open until early March. So that's a four-month window that people can visit. But I have to ask what most of our listeners are probably wondering, is Winter Realms as cool experientially, <laughs> experientially as an ice castle? I have definitely, I definitely wondered the same thing. And I asked Brad Buellhorn that exact question because honestly, I was sort of struggling to picture this new setup. Um, and he actually argued that visually it's pretty stunning first enter this thing, there is a 100-foot-tall pixel-light tunnel that you'll walk through, which has been one of the more popular attractions to take pictures with. As you make your way around the main part of the park, we have these larger-than-life 20, 25-foot-tall motifs of animals and winter animals that are all lit up. Uh, our ice skating rink is 60 by 90, and that has been by far the most popular thing. I mean, can you imagine just skating underneath the stars on the shores of Lake George? In the wintertime, throw a little snow in there. That's You're in a snow globe at that point. We built a, uh, a huge towering tree over our ice rink. It, it kind of gives you that Rockefeller center feel with a giant tree and ice skating. And so when weather allows it, and it is cold enough, um, there will also be adding in these ice castle elements like an ice throne, like they're building igloos right now, and snow drifts courtesy of either Mother Nature or their snowmaking equipment. Well, so that's been open for a couple of weeks now. And another attraction opened just last Friday, Lake George Winter's Dream. That one is being hosted at the Fort William Henry Historic Fortress. What can folks expect there? Yeah, so Winter's Dream is more of like an interactive light and music and laser video show with these like big light installations that you walk through like scattered around the whole fortress and you know i've seen a video of it and it's kind of like this um magical winter experience and and, like very different from winter realms even though their names are extraordinarily similar and it sounds like the two attractions are really hoping to feed Mm -hmm. off of each other and get people to visit lake george you know for longer to visit both well and everybody knows lasers are always a good time (laughs) (laughs) amy thank you so much for coming on to tell you about this it's been great my pleasure monica
melody music for two guitars. That was Danny Gotham and Barb Heller, Frosty the Snowman from their album All Through the Night. And get this, Barb Heller and Donnie Woodcock and friends have a Christmas sing-along coming up Sunday, this Sunday afternoon at 2 at Historic Pickens Hall in Hubleton. Admission by donation to benefit local food pantries. You know you want to sing along with holiday tunes this time of year. So close out the year with good friends Barb Heller, Don Woodcock, the annual Christmas sing-along at at Pickens Hall in Hubleton. And make a donation uh, to the Hubleton Methodist and St. Raphael's food pantries. Two o'clock Sunday afternoon. And I want to remind everybody about the latest episode of the Howell podcast from NCPR. It's the Howell Holiday Special. This holiday season here from host Ethan Shanty and a Plattsburgh storyteller, Al Lutz, who both share how Christmas taught them to make every moment count. You can find the Howell podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at ncpr.org slash Howell. That's it for the show today. I'm Monica Sandreski. I'm Todd Moe. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. Be well.